as has already been mentioned, uh, we have before us today one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, and beyond that, we could say even in all of literature. It is a really, really well-known passage. Pause for a moment. I need to make a phone call real quick. Can you guys hang on? No, I'm just kidding. Um, Just getting this thing going there. All right. One of the most familiar pieces of literature in all of the world. If you were to travel to different places, people would know the story of the boy, the young man, David, and this giant warrior, Goliath. Uh, Today is essentially part two as we began this chapter and looked at a lot of things last week. And so this is uh, the second sermon, if you will, from 1 Samuel chapter 17. There is so much truth relevant to my life and to your life in this chapter that we're going to, the second half of this chapter that we're going to look at today, I just want to just get into it with you. So I hope you have your, your Bibles open still, or if you have your device with you, you can uh, Google 1 Samuel 17, and we're just going to pick it up here at verse 24, which is where we left off last week. So this is a real event. This is not a made-up story. This actually happened. We dealt with that last week. And at verse 24, we see that the Israelites saw the man Goliath, this giant warrior from the superpower of the world of that time, the Philistines, and they ran from him in great fear. This is not how you want your army and your soldiers to be characterized. Running from the enemy in great fear. Verse 25. Now you see how this man keeps coming out. He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. So this information in verse 25 just kind of makes the culture and what's going on behind the scenes of the Israelite army as they're having discussions in their, in their barracks even worse. So not only is no one concerned enough to risk their life to go against this warrior, but there's this huge economic reward here for the person who steps up. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, this uh, unit that economists use uh, called the UDL. Uh, It's short for utility. And the unit of measurement that economists use to gauge satisfaction, uh, that that they call it the UDL. So I want to go and translate what's going on here into UDLs. This is is a lot of UDLs. Uh, Look look back at at your your text here for a moment. So whoever's going to go fight Goliath, Uh, will become the son-in-law of the king. Uh, That means it's likely you're going to become the king at some point. That's a big deal. That's a lot of utils. That's a lot of dollars. Also, your father's family, your father, your brothers, they are exempt from taxes. Can I get an amen on that? I mean, that, that, that sounds good. So this is a lot of utils. So from the soldier's analysis... We might say 100,000 utils 
There is a ton of utilitarian value and monetary and economic value if you will go out and do this. But from the soldier's analysis, what they are weighing that against is whether they are going to die when they go against this great warrior. So my life continuing is worth infinite utils, and I am not willing, no one in the ancient Israelite army, including the king, is willing to go against this great warrior. So it's a pretty simple calculation that my infinite utils, uh, my value of my life being infinite, compared to 100,000 utils from the king's reward, there's no contest so far. Well, let's come back to our, our text here and look at David brings a little different perspective. Verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine? And then this last phrase of that question is really important and removes this disgrace from Israel. That's a new piece. David is not primarily interested in the economic reward. David is interested in removing this disgrace from Israel. For 40 days, the chosen people of God, the army of God, have been challenged by this Philistine, this pagan. And no one is willing to risk themselves for the reputation of the covenant-keeping God of Israel. So what's going to be done? Continuing in verse 26, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David has a fundamentally different approach to this problem than every single people, every single person on the battlefield. David understands if we want to convert it to utils, 100,000 utils uh, of the king's reward. But what David is comparing that to is God's reputation. Not to his own life. Not to whether he's going to live or die. But he is thinking about the reputation of the creator and sustainer of the universe who has chosen Israel to be a people outstanding and above reproach and to love their neighbors and, and to be a, a city on a hill, if you will, a country on the planet that will show how great our God is. So God's reputation to David is worth an infinite amount of utils. And so David's analysis is, um, hey, I, I'm, I'm available. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to do this. He hasn't said that yet, but we know that this is what is coming as the men are having this conversation and David is asking it is what is going on. There's a reason that this conversation is happening behind the scenes because David is the only one who might be interested in taking this out. So this is the very beginning of this passage. That's what the reader is noticing. What we have going on here is a self-centered heart versus a God-centered heart. And the reality is the heart of every Israelite soldier, including the king, including the colonels and the captains and the infantrymen and everyone, they have a self-centered heart. But David, this young man, is coming along and he has a God-centered heart. He is concerned about the reputation of his God and that this Philistine is defying them and that this is a disgrace. That is what he is concerned about. So at this moment, um, you might be thinking, well, Mike, are you being unfair on each of those soldiers? Are you saying that, that, that each of those soldiers should be willing to risk their lives or that you and I should be willing to risk our lives for, for God's reputation? I think what is missing 
or a way to respond to that question would be what is missing is the heart that we see in the theology that we see in Daniel chapter 3. Many of you are familiar with that story. It says there, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. The king here, this wicked king, is kind of somewhat analogous to Goliath in today's passage. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. This theology and this spirit is what is missing. So the careful reader of 1 Samuel 17 isn't saying that everybody in the, in the Israel, Israelite army should have been willing to defeat Goliath and think that they're actually going to take him out, but they should have been concerned for the reputation of God and actually been willing to risk themselves in battle. So we have a self-centered heart of all of the Israelites, and we have a God-centered heart of this one who's actually have a com- having a conversation. So at this point in this passage, the reader is thinking, is this, is this guy going to step up? There's been 40 days, and nobody has stepped up. Nobody has stepped up. So how this relates to your life and my life is that God wants you and me to be concerned about his reputation. And he wants us to be actually so concerned about his reputation that we would be willing to risk our lives. I I, I mean that. I say that. Now, I say that in all honesty I think this is incredibly unlikely, like very close to 0% likelihood that I, Mike, am going to be, have to, as a Christian, in other words, if I, if I remain in America the rest of my days and years, I think the likelihood that I'll be in a situation where to proclaim faith in Jesus is going to mean that my life is going to be taken, I think it is almost a 0% chance. That, that is just probably not going to happen. But I ought to have a longing for a heart like David has here, and we're going to see in the remainder of this passage. Look at what Jesus says in Luke 9. He says this to you. He says this to me. For whoever wants to save his life, that's the entire Israelite army. They did the calcs, and and I'm not going to lose my life and go fight this guy. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Jesus is saying, Christians should have a heart that says, I, this is the way I would put it, in all honesty, what I want to say before this passage, before what Jesus said, this is, this is, is this demanding? This is pretty demanding. This isn't, you know, just sign here and, and you're in. If you lose your life, you will save it. So the Christian reading for Samuel 17, the Christian connecting 1 Samuel 17 with the gospel and with New Testament, I think we must come away saying, God, would you give me the kind of faith, would you give Mike the kind of faith, that if I were in some kind of situation like this, which I probably never will be, like David was in, that I would actually be willing to rescue the reputation of Jesus and be willing to risk my life. Would you give me the grace to think now that if I were actually in that situation, that you would supply what I need, God, to do that? This this is serious. 
what is going on in 1 Samuel 17, which is also in the New Testament. A self-centered heart versus a God-centered heart. That's verses 24 through 26. Look what happens now. 27. So there's these conversations going on. I think the careful reader has made the observation that there's conversation going on that there might actually be someone among our soldiers now who's actually going to go and fight this guy. And this makes it all the way to David's brothers, this news. So they repeated to him, that is to David, what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. In other words, yeah, are, are, do, do you know the reward? <laughs> this is a big reward. There's a lot of utils. But look how David's brother Eliab responds. Verse 28, David's oldest brother heard him speaking with the men. The way we're supposed to understand that is there is, you know, crazy news, bad news and awesome news travels really fast. The news is there might be one among us now who's actually going to go and take him down, who's willing to risk their life. So Eliab hears this conversation going on with the men, and what is his response he is so happy that God's reputation is going to be defended. He responds with anger at David. And he asks, why have you come down here? Those of you that were here last week, remember Eliab and his two other brothers? Their pictures are in the front of the entryway of the house in their dress military uniforms. David is feeding the sheep and playing the harp. He's not in the army. So here he is. Why have you come down here? Near us men who are so strong, none of us will fight this guy. So this passage is for me and for you. What is going on in Eliab's, Eliab's heart is when you and I, when Mike, most of the time, there is such a thing as righteous anger, that's not what we're talking about here. Most of the time that I am angry, I am selfish and I lack discernment. And that's what's going on here with Eliab. If we want to really answer the question, why have you come down here, he has come down here because he is a faithful son and his dad has asked him to bring bread and cheese to the soldiers. He's, David is the Uber Eats guy in the family. That's why he's here. He's a fifth commandment son honoring his father and mother. That's why he's here. Eliab is impugning his character and saying, and what, come back to the text, and with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are. In actuality, David is humble. In actuality, David isn't concerned that he's not in the army. He's okay tending the sheep, and he's okay playing the harp. How wicked your heart is. Whose heart's actually wicked here? Eliab's heart is the wicked heart. You came down only to watch the battle. There ain't no battle. The cowards have been watching for 40 days the challenger come out. I mean, this is, this 
is a convicting passage, particularly for men who get angry because we lack discernment and we are selfish and we don't get what we want. Eliab would like to have been the warrior who takes Goliath down. His little brother shows up to deliver food and the word on the street is my little brother is going to go fight Goliath. Human anger is often rooted in selfishness. Hurting people hurt people. Eliab is a man who is hurting. Instead of confessing his hurt like a real man, he is lashing out in judgment at his brother. He is blind to his own sin. And he's quick to jump on the perceived sins of others. This passage is incredibly relevant to men and women. And as Mike primarily concerned about his own sin or about other sins? Is Mike primarily ready to jump on the perceived sins of others? In this case, they're all completely wrong. They're completely opposite. The reader can see that. He's not just off a little. He's 100% off with what's going on in his little brother's heart. So we need to run away from this. I wrote on my notes, Eliab syndrome, that men in particular are prone to. Blind to my own sin and quick to jump on the perceived sins of others, which may or may not be real. In this case, the perceived sins are not real sins. Back to our text, 29. So here's David's response. Now what have I done? So this lets the reader know that this ain't, no, this ain't a new thing going on in the family. This has been going on for time. There's history here with these boys. Now what have I done? In other words, David has experienced Eliab's anger before. Can I even speak? Verse 30. He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same manner. So the way I understand this, now conversation is happening about his willingness to defend, from David's perspective, the honor of the covenant-keeping God of Israel and to fight Goliath. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, who is the king. The reader knows David is actually anointed as king, but Saul is still functioning as the king, even though he's turned away from the Lord and the Lord has withdrawn his spirit from Saul. Saul is functioning as the king. But the reader knows that David is anointed. And what happens? Saul sent for him. Can you imagine Eliab's response? My little brother is getting an audience with the king. It's a big deal. One-on-one. -on -one with the king. 40 days. Has anybody stepped up to the plate? No. Now Saul sends the king for David, the younger brother. Let's look at verse 32 and 30. So David's now in the company of the king. David says to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. 
Saul replies, You are not able to go out against this Philistine. Fight him, you're only a boy. And he has been a fighting man from his youth. His picture has been up in the entryway of his house for a long time in uniform. He knows tactics. He knows how to fight. He knows hand-to-hand combat. You can't go. Sheep tender, shepherd, harp player. Now, if we pause here for a moment, there's actually reason here. This is actually... This actually appears right, what Saul's saying. This doesn't seem like the one who should be stepping up. And what the Lord is trying to show us here is that sometimes things are not as they appear. Especially when God is involved. Especially when divine power is involved. Sometimes things are not as they appear. It appears there is no way. This is the last person that should be sent. He hasn't been training. He doesn't have a uniform. He doesn't have weapons. This is a shepherd and a harpist. And so we can sympathize with what Saul's saying here. Back to the text, verse 34. But David says to Saul, this is important. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Let's pause there. This ain't no normal shepherd. Um, uh, he doesn't have a long gun. He doesn't have a pistol. He's got a staff. He's been out caring for his father's sheep. And the sheep has been taken. What kind of person goes after the sheep that's in the mouth of a lion or a bear? And then... He rescues the sheep and kills the lion or bear. One answer to that question is someone who is anointed with divine power. This ain't normal, what he's doing. Verse 36, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. I've got that sentence underlined. Why is David going to go against the Philistine? It is because the Philistine, Goliath, has defied the armies of the living God. It is the right thing to do. Hallowed be your name. We care about your reputation. David cares. Verse 37. The Lord who delivered me Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the paw of the Philistine. And I said paw instead of hand there, because in Hebrew, all three of those words are the identical words. The paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, and the paw of the Philistine. Bringing rhetorical unity here. Now, say, why didn't our translators translate it hand, Mike? Well, because in English it doesn't make sense to say the paw of a Philistine. 
So, so it makes sense in English. They translated it hand. That's the right thing to do. But you miss this in the Hebrew text. These three words are the same. Who has given David deliverance from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, and is about to give deliverance from the paw of the Philistine? It is God. It is divine power. So Saul, to his credit, we don't have a lot of credit going Saul's way in these chapters, so let's make good of this. So look at Saul says to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So Saul has completely changed course. He had very reasonable uh, response to David. You can't go against this guy. But now that he hears that God has delivered him from these things, he is the anointed one. Go, and the Lord be with you. Sometimes things are not as they appear. One commentator writes, the odds are therefore much more even than either Saul or Goliath might imagine. So this is, so we need to, we've already talked this morning about how we need to remove this children's story from our minds, that this great big giant, which is true, and this small person in comparison with this great giant of a man, Goliath, uh, this outmatch thing is what's in our minds. Well, up until this point, if you're a Las Vegas bookie and you're going to make odds and you hear that David has killed a lion and a bear with his hands and you actually believe that's true, that he actually did that, this isn't so disparate, this battle that's about to happen. The odds are much more even than Saul understands at the beginning or Goliath could possibly imagine. This guy is anointed with divine power. And those killings were in anticipation of the killing that's going to happen. Things are often not the way they appear. That's true about David, and it's true about the greater David. John chapter 1. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. I mean, it's like this podunk town. Are you trying to tell me that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, is coming from Nazareth and is the son of Joseph? Are you kidding me? Things are often not the way they appear. And this David is pointing to a greater David, the son of David, the Messiah who would come. And he, like David in this story, is is not what he appears to be. Back to our text, verses 38 uh, through 44. So Saul's reversed course, go and the Lord Lord be with you. Verse 38, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, a customary thing a shepherd's always going to have with him. And he chose five smooth stones from the stream. He put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, he approached 
the Philistine. Meanwhile, verse 41, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. There is a spiritual battle here. The Philistine is claiming his God as superior, his idols, his false gods, we know. Small g, they're not real gods, they're made up gods. Using the name of his god Dagon to curse David. Verse 44, come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. For 40 days, he's been waiting for a fight, and he finally has it. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. Goliath has the size, he has the strength, he does not have the divine power, and he is about to fall. And the Lord wants us to see this pride, not only in Goliath, but in Eliab, coming out in anger toward this humble servant, David. Backing up just a few verses, um, he, he, he took these five smooth stones from the stream. And uh, the Goodriches, who are here this morning, were just in Israel, where are you guys, just a few weeks ago. April, a few months ago. May. Sometime recently. They brought back some stones right here from that stream in that valley. Now normally, so the, these three stones... Uh, are, are from where this battle took place. Now, in my research, what it says is normally a, a shepherd boy like David would have uh, a two to three inch stones that were shaped or, or manufactured by hand uh, out of flint. He would have those with him normally to take out uh, a predator, take out uh, something. David doesn't have those with him. And so we see the providence of God in the fact that he's provided five smooth stones. Again, all kinds of crazy sermons about what five smooth stones represent. I think it's about as basic as, I don't want to rely on just one shot to take this guy down. So he's got five shots. He's got a clip of five to go against Goliath. That's, I think, the significance of the five smooth stones. But there's more, I think, the providence of God in providing those stones right there in that creek bed. Back to our text here. We're at verse 45. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. That's David's strength. I'm coming to you in the name and when it says in the name, it's referring to his character, his power. The name represents all that you are in your being in, in ancient society. There's a lot about a name. I'm coming to you in the name and the full authority and power of the Lord, the God of the armies of Israel. Those armies have been embarrassment for the last 40 days. He doesn't say that. I'm saying that. The reader knows that. Whom you have defied. This day, verse 46, the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. 
Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. That's David's motivation. That's his strength. It's not the 100,000 utils. Verse 47, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. The weapons of warfare for the believer, for the Christian, are spiritual. David's strength is coming from the Lord. God wants us to see that perhaps more than anything else in this unit of Scripture, that we desperately need His power and His anointing to face the various battles that we face in life. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we are not waging war according to the flesh. We are not waging war according to who is best equipped militarily to take Goliath down. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You and I need the power of God in our lives to destroy the strongholds, the temptations, the demonic and evil power and forces that go on inside of us. If you're older than four or five years old, you have lied in your, laid in your bed at night and, and, and fought spiritual battles with temptation, with depression, with discouragement, with inferiority, with pride, with anger. How are you going to overcome those battles? Not according to the flesh, not according to the world's principles. Well, does that mean you don't use medicine or trust doctors? No. It means... It doesn't mean that, that if God gives wisdom to, to doctors or psychologists or whatever that, that we reject their help. What, it, what it's saying is ultimately where our greatest battles are going to take place, it's that we need God's strength to help us destroy those strongholds. That's the primary teaching of 2 Corinthians 10 and of 1 Samuel chapter 17. You and I need divine power. We're not likely going to risk, have to risk our lives as David did, but we are going to face battles and we need God's help to defeat those and to win victory. Last night we were um, at a uh, dinner party, my wife's colleagues, and it was one of those, I mean, it was one of those things like, um, she, she had to go for work, like you have to go. So everyone there has to go, but you're like pretending that you're just there to have fun and socialize, but you have to be there. Like they actually like had a QR code and you had to scan when you got in the house, you know, so that uh, the boss knows that, that you were there. And uh, we actually started talking about that and joking about it, so it wasn't actually even, even hidden. I'm not sure why I'm telling you all this, but it was just crazy. But I, I do want to tell you this. I wasn't planning on telling you that. But what I want to tell you is we're sitting at the table last night, and one of the moms at the table, young mom with first child, uh, keeps looking at her phone. Now, that's a common thing in our society. Amen? 
I mean, people are often looking at their phones. Um, that's, uh, yeah, anyway, I'll, I'll try not to get off on that. Um, so she's looking at her phone, but this was for a good reason. This was cool. She is looking at her baby in the crib at her house where the babysitter's watching. You know, she's got the camera, she's got the app, she's got everything, and, and she's caring uh, like, like, a, like a mama bear. She just, she wants to know, and it was just, it was cool for me to, to, to see that and, and to watch that. And it made me think back of, of caring for our children when they were in cribs, when they were babies, and thinking about all of the various parenting techniques and sleep and wake cycles and feeding and all of these things uh, that we've done for our children over the years. Ours are very far from the crib now. And how that relates to this passage, 1 Samuel 17, in 2 Corinthians 10, is the most important aspects of discipleship of our children are not the techniques it's not the fleshly or rudimentary or basic decisions we made about how to feed them, when they should sleep, which chores they should do. There's value in all of that. But the most important weapons, if you will, in the spiritual battle for our kids' lives is God himself in divine power. The power of prayer, the power of the gospel to destroy strongholds in the lives of our children. That's the most important battle. So that my children grow to love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. I need the power, divine power, that comes through prayer and the power of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, including my children. And they need to see the power of the gospel in my life and I need to pray for them. That's what I was thinking last night when I watched this woman caring, lovingly caring, protecting, watching her baby in the crib. The weapons of warfare for the Christian are spiritual weapons. This is a primary takeaway from this passage. Let's come back to our text here. We're almost done. 48, and we're going to finish up at, at verse 51 today. Verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly. Beautiful literature here. Where did we start? Verse 24, when the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. So all the Israelites are running, in verse 24, away from Goliath. Now we have David running quickly toward Goliath, in verse 48. 49, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. He didn't have the normal battle equipment that he should have had, is what the text is saying. Verse 51, David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword, the Philistine's sword, and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. 
When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. We began with the Israelites running. We end the sermon today with the Philistines running. And this one who defied the covenant-keeping God of Israel is dead. He's dead. He's gone. The weapons of warfare for the Christian are spiritual. We've already looked at that. I want to highlight briefly the actual weapon that David used. This weapon was very insignificant in this battle, especially if we go back where Goliath says in verse 43, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? He sees the shepherd's stick in his bag. He doesn't see this guy with any weapon at all. He doesn't even see the sling. Now, some of you have traveled to Israel. You've been to this valley. I wonder if any of you have been to Florence and seen this statue of, of David. Anybody, anybody been there? A few of you been there. I haven't been there, but I'm looking forward to going there. So Michelangelo was commissioned to sculpt this event, 1 Samuel 17. I don't know if you've noticed it, but do you see what's in his left hand? A sling. There's a sling. It's very small. It's, it's not really noticeable in this incredible masterpiece of art. Uh, if you go to the travel guides about the statue, this is what they tell you. Michelangelo chose to break with tradition, instead showing the moment before the battle. There have been many sculptures, many artistic renderings of this, and they always show David with the head of Goliath. He broke with that tradition. The travel guide goes on and says, David is alert and concentrated with a surprisingly small and inconsequential slingshot over his left shoulder. This is where I have to correct my travel guide friends. A nod to the Renaissance ideal that man's victories are due to intellect and confidence, not brute strength. Now, when I say correct them, I don't pretend to know what was in Michelangelo's heart or his motive in why he made the statue this way. But you and I now know from reading 1 Samuel 17 that the victory belongs to Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, and not to the intelligence of David who came with a slingshot. It's kind of like going back earlier when I said, does that mean we don't go to doctors? No, we still go to doctors, psychologists or soul care, but our divine power is where we look for ultimately for help. David has a sling. He has to fight. But the power source is from the Lord. So the smallness of the sling in light of 1 Samuel 17 in David's statue is due to the greatness of God, not to the Renaissance theme of man's great intellect. Man's intellect is in deep hurt in 1 Samuel 17 with an entire army of chosen people, uh, an older brother who are just lost and clueless. Intellect was not to be found. Spiritual understanding was not to be found except for in this humble one David who God had prepared for this moment. So in the end, 
It was not the sling, but the battle belongs to the Lord. I want to conclude because when we preach the Old Testament, it is important that we preach it in light of the gospel and the New Testament. So another false way to understand 1 Samuel 17, false teaching, would be that believers triumph and always have victory over their physical enemies. That is not what this passage teaches. It is not what the Bible teaches. Christian victory sometimes includes healing or triumph. Healing. Think of the Gospels and the paralytic. Man who's paralyzed. Jesus says, take up your mat and walk. There is victory in healing there. There is victory in today's passage. There is triumph in victory. So Christian victory sometimes includes healing, sometimes includes triumph, the paralytic in the Gospels, or David in this chapter. But Christian victory sometimes includes suffering or martyrdom. 1 Samuel 17 must be read, every chapter of the Bible must be read in light of the whole Bible. So 1 Samuel 17 does not teach that if you're facing battle A, battle B, battle C, that God, like David, is necessarily going to give you physical victory over that. He did not give Jesus victory, in one sense, over the suffering of the cross. Remember his prayer? If, there, if there's a way that this cup could not come my way, that he suffered massively. That was God's design. So victory might include healing or triumph, but Christian victory might also include suffering or martyrdom. We'll close with this. Paul had some suffering in his life. We don't know what it is. It's purposeful ambiguity. We don't know what it is because it's incredibly relevant to you and me when you suffer or I suffer. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, this thorn in the flesh, this suffering. Three times. Now, a wrong application of 1 Samuel 17 is if you're a humble, faithful follower of Yahweh, you're going to slay the Goliath in your life, and that thorn in the flesh is going to go away. That is false teaching. It might go away, or the Lord might say to you, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Paul has learned this. This is hard to learn. It is incredibly hard to boast in your weaknesses. It is incredibly hard to be willing to risk your life. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, Paul says, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We have to have balance to Christian victory. Sometimes it includes healing and triumph. For Samuel 17, the paralytic, sometimes it includes suffering. Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, sometimes it includes martyrdom, John the Baptist. This is a, a biblical view of the battle belonging to the Lord and Christian victory. Let's bow our heads together and ask the Lord to give us his strength. Lord, we desperately need divine power to bring down strongholds 
in our lives. Lord, sometimes you, as we pray and seek your face, you deliver us and we have an outward and physical victory and healing and we are so thankful for those moments. I'm, I've been thinking of one this week where years ago a young man who had brain trauma was in an ICU from our church and, and something that rarely happens in an ICU and, and, and he walked out of the ICU Normally, you're stepped down into different rooms and work your way if you make it out of there. But I think there was a miracle there, and he walked out. But Lord, I've also been to many ICUs where believers are there, and the opposite sort of thing happens where they're suffering and death. Lord, we need your strength and power. No matter how you are going to be glorified in our lives, whether it's through our weakness or whether it's through healing. And so, might we look to you for strength this week for the various battles that we face? And might this passage help us to do that? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.